Good morning. Whoa. Now you're really awake, right? All right. Um, if you have a Bible with you, turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, chapter 1. And as you're doing that, I'd like you to repeat after me. Jesus is better. Ready? Jesus is better. Okay, now that you have tried and failed, let's try it one more time. Jesus is better. That's what the sign says outside. And that's the theme of the next, I don't know how long, but it's the theme for the book of Hebrews. And uh, Father, we thank you for this wonderful book and for the opportunity to study it. Help us just to be rocked by this book, Lord. It's such a, it's an amazing book. It can literally change our lives. And I know it has changed mine for the better, and I pray that for everyone here today. Thank you so much, Lord, for those watching online. Help them feel as if they are here and with us in spirit. And for all of us here this morning, may, Holy Spirit, may you teach us really directly to our spirit and um, help me stay out of your way. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So yeah, turn to the, the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter one, and we're gonna be looking at verses one through three today. And um, I wanna start uh, by an, uh, an article that I read a few years ago. Uh, I'm not gonna read the whole article, just a little short burst from it, but um, the title of the article was Holy Land Church's Mount Awareness Campaign in Wake of Hate Graffiti. Holy Land Church's Mount Awareness Campaign in the Wake of Hate Graffiti. Uh, Jerusalem, the head of Pope Francis's Holy Land visit, the heads of Christian churches in the region plan to launch an international awareness campaign followed by a series of anti-Christian, uh, following a series of anti-Christian vandalism believed to have been carried out by Jewish extremists. News of the campaign which was announced uh, on Wednesday comes weeks before the Pope's May 25th through 26th visit to Israel and the West Bank. Uh, the announcement was spurred by what was called a wave of fanaticism and intimidation against local Christians and institutions. On Friday, graffiti declaring, this is really aggressive and it kind of shocked me when I read it, and uh, so just take it in the spirit it's given, but on Friday, graffiti declaring, King David is for the Jews, Jesus is garbage. I didn't want to read that this morning, but this will help us get into what Hebrews is all about. King David is for the Jews, Jesus is garbage, was discovered, scrawled on a wall opposite a Jerusalem church. Very aggressive, isn't it? Very ugly. Very, uh, very vehement, vigorous statement about their view of Judaism and their view of Jesus Christ. Again, let's answer the question, who do you think said this? Who do you think said this? Well, why would they have said it? Maybe a more appropriate question. Why would they talk that way about Jesus? Well, this article makes it clear who it was and why they said it, okay? They were unbelieving Jews, non-Christian Jews, rabidly opposed to Jesus and to those who believe in him most likely including some former Jews who had now professed faith in Jesus as their Messiah. The believers here in the book of Hebrews were in the same type of atmosphere, okay? 
They were once among un the unbelieving Jews, like this too, but had been miraculously saved. Um, 15 years before this book was written, these Jewish Christian believers um, had been severely persecuted. 15 years had now passed, and that's where we find ourselves going in the book of Hebrews at that time. Uh, they had been, had their property, property confiscated, they had been insulted, persecuted, and really undergone a lot of trials from the unsaved Jews because they had become saved Jews, okay? And now, 15 years later, pro, uh, persecution is on the rise again. It's on the foreseeable f future, the horizon, starting to heat up again. And uh, they, it looked like they were going to get back to 15 years ago, and they were really concerned about that, as you can imagine. And so they started to get tempted. They got tempted about going back to the life that they had before. They were tired, they were weary, they were uh, becoming fearful. Uh, they wanted to live in comfort and in safety and in convenience. They wanted to reattach themselves to the synagogue and, and be part of that wonderful, in a lot of ways, Jewish community, have all their social contacts. And they were getting beat up and they said, you know, kind of like the Israelites that Dan talked about a few weeks ago, it was so much better back then, having lost perspective of what they now had in Christ. And what, what the book of Hebrews is all about is Christ, but also, this, as uh, Dylan prayed, the superiority and the betterness of Christ, and why in the world would you go back to your past life compared to what you now have in Jesus? But the reality is, that's gonna happen again. As persecution rises in the Western world, then people are gonna be tempted to bail out. You know, they didn't sign up for that. They signed up with some of what the health and wealth gospel teachers, word faith movement teachers, easy believism teachers said, here's the Christian life. You'll never have any real problems again. And all of a sudden, we got problems. And I don't want to be a prophet of doom. I don't want to be looking at life with the glass half full. And I'm hoping the rapture comes before the tribulation. But can't you just sense on the horizon that it might get a little rougher for us before it's all over? Amen? Amen. It, it, I, again, I, I don't know the timetable. I don't predict dates. But we can tell, we can feel, we can sense in our spirit that Christians are about the last people that are going to be accepted by our society in a certain amount of time. Okay? And so the writer to the Hebrews goes all out to encourage these these Jewish Christians, he says, did you forget how great Jesus is? Is your mind going blank? Kind of like those Israelites wandering in the desert. Did you forget his superiority, his, wow, his uh, uh, betterness than the old covenant? Are you forgetting that? I'm gonna remind you. Just like a good Jew, I'm gonna say it about 25 times before I am done, right? Again, we need this. I, I wrote this list down, it's, it's purely my list, but there are a lot of non-biblical uh, ideas about Jesus out there, okay? There is an increasing outright, I would say, rejection of biblical Christianity. 
and its morals and lifestyle. An outright, it's becoming an outright rejection, I should say. Um, there is a quickening rise, in my opinion, of satanically inspired philosophies and religions. Okay, all around the world, I could name them for you. There's a possibility for Christians to experience maybe some more intense persecution like these Jewish Christians were experiencing. So it's important that we understand that we don't want to leave Jesus. And you say, well, why would you say that to an evangelical, converged church on a Sunday morning? Certainly no one here would do that. But you know, you've heard the saying before that Christians are like tea bags. You don't know what you got till they're in hot water. It's an old cliche. And we're told in the Bible that in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. And many apparent Christians, such as, the, like Jesus said, the wheat and the tares, will choose to leave the faith. And it's a, it's a horrible thought, but it's true. And that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. So the title of the message today is The Superiority of the Savior. And we're gonna look at three ways that God speaks under this title. He speaks through creation, he speaks through the prophets, and most of the sermon will be he speaks through the betterness and superiority of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's think about this. First of all, um, the, the writer to the Hebrews is saying it's worth staying faithful to and persevering for Jesus when times get rough and circumstances get difficult, and it's gonna happen to each one of us in some way or another whether life experiences or downright persecution. So, first of all, God speaks through creation. In verse one it says, in the past God spoke. Isn't it interesting how the Bible never argues for God's existence? He exists, I'm telling you, he does. You just don't see that. It's assumed, okay? And one of the main ways, starts with the first verse of the first book of the Bible, is that God uh, speaks through creation. God speaks definitely through creation. I was coming down off the hill of Camino down into work here on Monday, and it was that clear day, of, and the Cascades, right from Mount Baker all the way over to, I don't know the name of the last one. Oh, it's just utterly stunning. It was as if God was saying, yeah, here I am. Enjoy your day, signed, God, you know. So beautiful. In fact, the scriptures say, in Psalm 19, the glory of God, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the works of his hands. If you want to know how great God is, go out on a clear night when it's pitch black and look up at the stars. And God gets big and we get small. So God speaks through creation. He also speaks through the prophets. In verse one it says, God, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. I don't have to explain that many times in various ways. You know what that means. But he speaks through the prophets. And the Jews revered the prophets. And they saw themselves as uh, specially entrusted with the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. In fact, uh, Paul says in Romans 3, 2, to them, to the Jews, were entrusted the oracles of God. They felt like they were the stewards of the Old Testament because God spoke through the mind and personalities and experiences, excuse me, of men. 
And God speaks that way. But, and that's, I love that word but there in verse two. There's a third way that God speaks. And he's talking to these Jewish Christians and to you and me because of the society that we live in and because of the hardships that we enter into just on, in the course of life. He speaks to us and them through the superiority and the betterness of his son Jesus. And the argument that he's trying to make is, why would you go back when Jesus is so awesome? And so cool, in the Greek it's kulos. No, I'm kidding. No, but, but Jesus is so awesome and cool and wonderful. Why would you go back to that religion of dead works and law keeping and uh, perpetual sacrifices and you never really knew if they were all covered or not so you had to do them over and over and over and over and over again. He speaks through the superiority and the betterness of his son, Jesus Christ. And so he says, but, in verse two, that's indicating that something very special is on the way in this passage, okay? Something superior so superior to the old life that you used to have, why would you even consider leaving Christ for that? That's how I feel, by the way, personally. When I look at my life up to the age of 17, and I'm not gonna go into detail because it's none of your business, okay? But when I think of going back to that, it kind of makes me nauseous. Jesus is a whole lot better than the way I used to live on my own. I'm sure everyone here could say that. I really do. But it says he's, uh, that uh, he's better than that old pre-Christian life. And that's why we should stay true to Jesus no matter what happens, okay? And he says uh, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ. Not just the mere man, right? But Christ, the Lord of all the prophets, the Lord of all creation, the culmination of all the biblical property, prophecies rather, and Old Testament laws. He's the one that's uniquely qualified to set aside the Mosaic Covenant and the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system in favor of himself. Nothing could be better than that to a Jew and to a Gentile alike. Why give that up? Why leave it for so much less? And we're warm and we're comfortable in this uh, worship area. We're safe. But what if that isn't always so accessible at one point in time in the future? We need to remember what you're about to hear because what the writer does, is he gives us eight descriptions in verses two and three that express the unique superiority and betterness of Jesus that will keep us on task no matter what. My goal this morning is that this goes so deep into your spirit that nobody here will ever bag it for what they had in the past because of what happens in their life. I don't want anybody to apostatize Jesus at Cedar Home Baptist Church. So I would never do that. That's what Peter said. So you've got to be careful. So let's look at these eight descriptions that speak of the betterness and superiority of Jesus. I told you last week that this book is 2021. Did I not? 
All right, you better believe it. A perfect template for our day. Okay, number one, we're told that Jesus is the heir of all things. Jesus is the heir of all things. Verse two, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things. You know, when you talk about, hear the word heir in the Bible, it kind of makes Jesus sound like he's less than the father. We have the father and then we have Jesus, the heir. But that's not what it means at all. Now, there are certain false Christian teachings and cults that will teach that, that Jesus is less than the Father. But we believe in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal. And Jesus is not less than God. And when we understand what the word heir means, it's absolutely clear. In Colossians 1.16, we're told that all things were not just created by him, but for him. John MacArthur, in his commentary on Hebrews, says, firstborn or heir does not mean that Christ does not exist before he was born as Jesus in Bethlehem. It is not primarily a chronological term at all, but it has to do with legal rights, especially those of inheritance and authority. Jesus is the uncreated creator who became human flesh, but who still was and is, and I love this word, he is the proprietor, the proprietor, the owner, the inheritor of the universe by virtue of who he is and always was. I love that word proprietor. Jesus owns the store of the universe. And because he's God, everything that exists, exists for him. Is that clear so far? Thank you both for saying that. Anybody else think that's clear? Okay. I'm all about audience response, okay? You gotta understand that. And I will bug you until I get it, all right? So because he is God, everything that exists, exists for Jesus. And, and by the way, soon, soon, History's gonna wrap up. And the proprietor of the universe is gonna retake the earth and the universe, redeem it and recreate it from all evil. Now, side note, one of the greatest truths in the Bible is that those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, fasten your seatbelt, those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior and become Christians. Are you ready? Say, I'm ready. You and I will be fellow or co-heirs with Christ. Now, I've got to read this to you. It's here somewhere in the Bible. Uh, I think it's the New Testament. No, I know it is. I'm just, it's Romans chapter 8, 15 and 16. Listen to this. Actually, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now I'm gonna tell you what that means because it's pretty crazy. Okay, what does it mean to, mean to be co-heirs with Christ? Fellow heirs with Christ. Well, let me continue on that one quote by John MacArthur that I said earlier. MacArthur continues this way. In other words, when we enter his in eternal kingdom, 
we will jointly possess all that he possesses. Can you wrap your brain around that? I can't. We're gonna jointly possess all that he possesses. He's gonna put us into that position. What is that gonna be like? It's an incredible privilege. We'll be fellow inheritors with Christ forever. Not joint Christs, our Mormon friends teach that. Or joint lords, our Mormon teach, teachers teach that. Some of the health and wealth gospel, prosperity gospel teachers teach that. That's a lie from hell. But we'll be joint heirs. His incredible, marvelous inheritance will be, and he inherits everything, because he's God, will soon be ours. So don't leave the faith. Don't bail out for some cheesy, dead religion or your past sinful behaviors, my past sinful behaviors. Don't bail out, no matter how hot the heat gets. Don't forsake him, no matter how much you're tempted or beat up. Don't, don't forsake him for more comfortable, convenient, safe, less persecuted environment, as many have done throughout history and well, especially in the days of trial just before Christ's return. It's happening now in the world as we speak. Now remember this as we go on to number two. You only get this joint inheritance with Christ if you have, unless if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot be co-inheritors uh, with Christ, fellow heirs with Christ, unless you're born again into a relationship with Jesus Christ by repenting of your sin, by confessing it to God, admitting it, by believing that Jesus Christ, was cru- the Son of God, was crucified, buried, bodily raised from the grave. We get to talk about that in three weeks. I'm excited. And asking him to be your Lord and Savior and lead you the rest of your way, uh, life. That's the only way you can become a co-inheritor with Christ. Otherwise, you don't get that. Number two, and he's telling them this, and he's, I mean, I could stop right now. It'd be enough to keep us uh, devoted to Christ. I mean, I could stop right now. Some of you just said amen. No, I'm sorry. I'm not stopping right now. I've got seven to go. I wore my watch today because I went so long last week. I told Debbie I am not gonna do that. So let's go to number two. Second description of the superiority and betterness of Jesus here is that Jesus is the creator. I mean, that would hit a Jew right between the eyes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It says here in verse uh, two, through whom he made the universe. Let's talk about the universe, just for fun. Cambridge physician Stephen Hawking, who has been called the most brilliant theoretical physician since Einstein, and I can't believe, well, he's gone now, isn't he? Did he not die? Yeah. I can't believe he didn't become a believer just knowing what I'm about to say, but anyway. um, uh, States that in his best-selling book, A Brief History of Time, that our galaxy is an average-sized spiral galaxy that looks to other galaxies like a swirl in a pastry roll, and that it is over 100,000 light years across. That's light traveling 186,000 miles per second for 100,000 of our calendar years. 
okay? I never get tired of saying this, never. About 600 trillion miles across. He says, we now know that our galaxy is only one of some 100,000 million that can be seen using modern telescopes. Each galaxy itself, can, <clears throat> excuse me, contains, containing some 100,000 million stars. It is commonly held that the average distance between these 100,000 million galaxies, each 600 trillion miles across, and containing 100,000 million stars is three million light years across. Is your brain breaking down yet? No, this is, it gets better. On top of that, the work of Edwin Hubble, Hubble Telescope, based on the Doppler effect, has shown that all red spectrum galaxies are moving away from us and that nearly all are red, thus the universe is constantly ex expanding. Some estimates say that the most distant galaxy is eight billion light years away and racing away at 200 million miles an hour. Now, there's lots more here, but you know, time is of the essence. But Jesus created it in one thought. Jesus. I would say that makes him superior and better. Okay? Scriptures are clear. John 1, 3, all things were made through him, and without him not anything made that was made. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things, and through whom all things were made, and through whom we exist. Romans eleven thirty six. From him, from for from him and through him, and to him all are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then First Corinthians, or excuse me, Colossians one sixteen. For by him all things were created. Okay, heaven and earth on earth, visible and invisible. Not just the matter out there, but the angelic realm whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Wow. I mean, it's, I mean the writer of the Hebrews is landing one haymaker after another, saying, Jews, don't go back to your gefilte fish and your chicken, what do they call those things? Balls. Matzo ball soup. I should know that of anybody here. <laughs> Don't go back to your crepluck and your potato pancakes, offering sacrifices all the time, never knowing if you're really okay with God or not. You've got the heir of all things, the creator of all things. And other than his perfect sinlessness and righteousness, Jesus' ability to create is one of the greatest proofs of his deity and of his divinity. Being the creator is the designation of God. You know, the ability to create things belongs to who alone? God, Christ. And he's created all things, making him better and superior. You know, if you gathered all the scientists in the world, all the microbiologists and the astrophysicists, all those really smart people, do you know they all together, from all the countries in the earth, 
all together could not even produce a blade of grass out of nothing. Not one blade of grass. They'd have to work with existing materials and they still couldn't do it. Or maybe they could, some semblance of a blade of grass, but not out of nothing. Only God can do that. Only the creator in Jesus is the creator. And I want to just take a side note here. I don't know what you came in here with today. Honestly, I don't. Most of us here, most of you here, I should say. You don't know what I came in here with today. You know, on my shoulders, in my heart. You don't know. I don't know you. Somebody said, I think I've said this before, everybody is fighting a battle that we know nothing about. But when you look at the power of Jesus, right, whether it's for our church, as we look for a new pastor and we wonder who, when, where, and other issues here, and, 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 and we have issues, you're wrestling with something. I know you are, because you're human. And then we look at the power and the superiority and the better of Christ. Then do we need to be hopeless? No. If he can do that, he can do anything. And he's worth sticking for and, and enduring with, no matter how tough things get. Never let the devil convince you that it was better back in the land of Egypt. It's not. And he's telling that to the Hebrew believers, and he's telling that to you and me. And then number three, Jesus the Son is the radiance of God's glory. Why should we stick with the Lord Jesus? Why should they, and they had it worse than we did, their property was going to be confiscated. They were going to get insulted and persecuted. All their uh, social network, you know, cell phones, Twitter, all their social networks. Just kidding there, but you, the synagogue, there was a social network. I lived it. There's a social network in the Jewish community that is the hub of that faith. Okay, it's a big deal. And when you cut yourself off from that, it gets dark. It's tough. Okay, but he says the sun is the radiance of God's glory. And that really means, it has the idea of reflection. He, he reflects God. He just, he reflects God. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. Radiance means to send forth light, to send forth light. Let there be light. And Jesus came to the earth as Messiah, paid for the, the price for our sins on the cross, was buried, died and was buried three days, burst forth in resurrection. You know, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. That's the Greek word, me." It means one in essence. You see me, what did he tell Philip? You see God. I mean, I've often wondered, you know, I think I know the answer, but I often wonder, what if I, Jesus appeared to me? What would I do? I don't think I'd say, hey, pal, how you doing? Yeah, good to see you. The hawk game's on in an hour, you wanna watch? I think I'd fall down and eat whatever carpet fibers were right in front of Jesus' feet. Maybe not. But when you see, but they had that privilege, didn't they? First John tells us they handled him, they touched him. Wow, they were touching 
the radiance of God's glory. And by virtue of faith, so were the Hebrew believers, right? Every time they said Jesus in prayer, they were touching the radiance of God's glory. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying, would you really give that up? To drag your sorry self to the temple with that sacrifice and kill it and hope the blood covers you for more than 10 seconds? Don't do it. Don't go back. And you, Christian, don't go back. I mean, this is what Bible teachers and preachers are supposed to tell their flocks. Don't go back. I mean, it's not a every week message, but stay strong. Hang in there. It's worth it. Number four, Jesus is the exact representation of his being. The writer to the Hebrews is telling them and us. And he's not just a representation, like we are. We're, we're ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. He is the representation. Not just a, but the. And the, an exact representation of his being. In Greek, that means the very stamp or exact, exact imprint of God. When you look at Jesus, you see God. You think they, they revered Elijah? And, and, and um, help me with some of the other prophets. Isaiah, who? I can't hear, but I think you're saying stuff like Daniel and the other prophets. They revered them. And the, and the writer to the Hebrews is saying, it's not just Elijah, Daniel, and, and the other prophets. He is not a representative of God. He is a visible representation of the invisible God. He is God. In the Greek, the term is used for the impression made by a die or a stamp on a seal. You see Jesus, you see God. The perfect imprint of God in time and space. Why would you ever want to worship anyone or anything other than that on him? Number five, Jesus is sustaining all things by his powerful word, verse three. I, that's me personally, other than the other seven, is one of my favorites. One of my favorites, because I just read to you guys that um, statement by um, R. Kent Hughes about the immensity of the universe, right? And you know, you could read for hours on that, but I read that, a brief quotation Jesus makes that hold together. The one that they had turned away from dead religion for was the one that holds the universe together, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Another uh, proclamation of deity, Jesus holds everything together. He's worth it. He's superior. He's better. He's God. The word uphold in verse three means to support or maintain and implies continuous action. Ever since creation, excuse me, Jesus has sustained and caused the universe to stay together. And again, we're talking about the universe that we just listened to and consists until this very second and someday he's gonna melt it down and recreate it where we'll live with him forever. And he's gonna melt it down on the atomic molecular level. If, you, if you're curious about that, read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 14. But 
until that very moment of destruction and recreation, every physical law, all physical principles, the composition and cohesion of all matter depends on Christ's sustaining power. The whole universe depends upon the cohesive power of Jesus. You're Christians, you are winners because you have the right Savior. Don't ever let anybody tell you different, okay? The whole universe depends on the cohesive power of Jesus. His all-sustaining power keeps it together, okay? I can't even keep a sandwich together, you know? Debbie made some, what was it? So good. Of course, everything she makes is good, but I think it was chicken salad. By the time I was done, I had more chicken salad on my shirt than I did in my mouth. I can't even hold a sandwich together. Jesus Christ holds the infinite millions upon millions and trillions and trillions of stars and planets together simply by willing it to be so. How superior and better is he than an Old Testament religion that really can't justify anybody. And you know, without Jesus' cohesive power, everything would just what? Yeah, blow apart, it'd, it'd self-destruct. Number six, and these three now that we finish on, and never believe a preacher when he says we're gonna finish on something, never believe them. When they say in conclusion, don't believe them, okay? But Jesus provided the six ones, purification for sins. We looked there, it says, that he's substituting all things by his power forward. After he provided purification for sins. Now, you know, you don't have to be a Bible expert or scholar to know how much that would mean to Jews in that era, right? Because that was before 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and the sacrificial system was destroyed. But back then, it was an integral part of daily life for the Jew. Okay, and I want to throw a few tenses at you. Jesus provided purification for sins. The Greek tense means once for all. Once for all. It's used in the past tense, too. Past tense. Jesus provided, okay, once for all, purification for sins. And that should make us do backflips for joy as much as it would the Jew. Now, I don't know about you, but don't tell anybody. I don't want to give it, I don't want it to get around. But before I became a Christian and after I became a Christian, I've sinned. I know that's a shocking statement to some of you. But that was already taken care of at the cross. And when he said that to Jews, they were, oh yeah, why would I go back to the temple sacrificial system where I got to do it every other day? And by the way, I think David Jeremiah, I'm trying to go back in my mind, said this, and I'll correct myself later when I find out for sure, but I think it was him, I was listening to a tape series on Hebrews by David Jeremiah, where he said that about a million sacrifices were made a year in the temple. And then they had the cleansing of the blood of Christ. And somehow, I think the 
writer of the Hebrews just woke him up and they said, oh yeah, I don't have to do that anymore. Why would I go back to that? It was important to them. I mean, how much better is Christ's atonement? It's God of very God who in human flesh took on the sins of the world, past, present, and future, and yours, past, present, and future, and my past, that's good enough, but present and future. There'll never be another sin that I commit that hasn't already been atoned for at the cross. And that's not because we're soft on sin, that's because Jesus knew it was necessary and we'd be facing an adversary called the devil who would want us to um, uh, feel guilty every time we disobeyed God and wallow in it. And now we have the ammunition to deal with the demonic realm and our own sensitive consciences through the blood of Christ. And he's, I can almost see their eyes starting to open up and go, yeah, why would we go back? Yeah, you know, he's right. Okay? Through that one great act, your sins were atoned for. I love 2 Corinthians 5, 19, 19 through 21. I'll just quote a, a bit of it. But God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. That's God the Father. Why turn our backs on this? That's what he's, the point he's making. And there will come a day when life slaps us in the face like a two, and, and hits us in the head like a two-by-four. How that's going to happen, I'm not really sure. Maybe it is that we'll fall out of favor with, with uh, the people in charge and we can no longer... Um, live our Christian lives the way that we've been used to. By the way, I believe personally that safety is kind of an illusion. You know, safety is kind of an illusion. We're addicted to it in this country, by the way. We are addicted to safety. But it's, it's kind of an illusion. And I'm not saying making a prophecy about the end times. I'm just saying sometimes we're not safe as Christians. What are we going to do then? What we need to do then is look at this verse and say he had provided purification for our sins. And you know, if you have that, you got everything, don't you? You got everything. If your sins are forgiven and you know you're going to heaven, you got everything. Nothing else ultimately matters. Okay? And then I want to come to... Certainly one of my favorites in these eight. And I just, I really love this. How am I doing on, am I doing better than last week, by the way? Nobody wants to say. Okay. Um, then he sat down. I just love this. Look at, look at verse uh, three. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down. I had to say it that way. He sat down. If there are three more sweet words in the whole Bible, I don't know them. He, Jesus, sat down. I love it. 
Why do you think the Lord uses that phrase here, he sat down? Well, when you think about the Old Testament sacrificial system, they never sat down. You know why they didn't sit down? There was no place to sit down. There were no chairs where they made sacrifices temporary for sin. They never sat down. There were no seats in the tabernacle or the temple sanctuaries. The priest couldn't sit because the sacrificial process could never end. He had to make sacrifices for the people over and over and over and over and over again. Like Jeremiah said, David Jeremiah, one million per year, I think it was that or more. I, I can't remember. I know it was at least a million. This makes Christ's work on the cross that much better and more powerful to these persecuted Jews and to us. It made it that much more powerful. You ever think about what you do? What, what, let's just say it's a rare 80 degree and sunny day in Washington's. Western Washington, and you go out and you, you do as much uh, lawn work as possible, right? You mow and you trim and you, you burn the whole thing, and you just work hard all day. And it's like, the, and you all the way to the point where it get, it's getting dark, what do you do? I mean, I know what I do. I don't do that in the first place, but what I would do if I could would be, or when I complete a task, I sit down, and I know a lot of you do too, because it's done, it's finalized. And, 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 and we're being told here, the work of, redemp of, of, of redemption and salvation is done. He sits down. And they ought to be three of the sweetest words we ever hear. Because when we fail and blow it, past, present, or future, we look back, and Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again on the third day. He ascended and sat down. He sat down. And again, as I just said, the priests in the temple never sat down. They never sat down. Amazing ramifications for Jewish people and for you and I. Okay? It's fin uh, it's the same idea on the cross. Jesus says his last three words were what? It is finished. It's, it's amazing that at the cross he said it is finished, three words, and that here in Hebrews it says he sat down, three words. And it's all about the fact that we are completely forgiven for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And I know it sounds too good to believe, but it's true. And these weary Jewish believers needed to, I wonder if the writer to the Hebrew, well, it was written, Mostly to Hebrew believers, there were some Gentile, but I wonder if he just was saying, I want you to look in the direction of the temple. You don't need to do that anymore. Why would you go back? So superior, Jesus is so much better. And then last, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And I'm not gonna make a big, you know, long spiel here, but in the Hebrew language and culture, the right hand meant honor, authority, finality, Honor, authority, finality. It's the place of highest honor. And the writer's trying to tell them, you got the best, why go back? And same for true with us, right? We got the best. We don't have to go to a mosque, we don't have to go to a temple, we don't have to go to 
wherever. We don't have to go to Stonehenge and march around in ankle-length robes. Jesus is already at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. So there you have the eightfold description of Jesus because that's really what the book is about and for, and for a reason. Don't turn back. The thing that shocks my brain is that people will. And you know what I think? They were probably not believers to begin with. Well, I've already mentioned it, but I, I, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper and I wanna I want just prepare us for that. But why do you think the writer of the Hebrews, book of Hebrews, um, started off this way? And it, it's kind of a rhetorical question. Because it made the Old Testament law and sacrifices, dead religion, compromise, and comfort and safety and convenience sake, and the worldliness that beckons us to come to it with all of its pleasures. It just, it just pales in comparison to the betterness and the superiority of who Jesus was and what he gave us and gives us. And it built them up, got them back on track in their fledgling faith. I just, I just pray, and for myself, because I'm not out of the circle, that we'll never turn back to our past that we had before Christ, no matter what. And maybe some of you are saying to yourself, you know, man, I'm tired. I feel so beat up. I feel like I've been in the wilderness, the desert, for a long time. I'm really tired. I don't even know if I want to go to church anymore. I'm tired of reading my Bible. And Remember, Jesus is better. He's superior. Stick with him. Now, I want us to get us ready for the communion this morning. And as we prepare to end our service with the Lord's Supper, I want you to focus on one of the phrases that we've already talked about because I am so excited about it, you have to be excited about it too, okay? And you know what that three-word phrase is? He sat down. He, God in Christ, sat down. And that speaks of the wonderful finality, past, present, and future, of our forgiveness for sins in Christ. He sat down. I hope that just goes around in your brain all day. He, no, he sat down. Honey, did you hear what Mitch said at church? He sat down. Hey kids, did you hear what? Yes, Dad, it's the 15th time you said it. He sat down. Say it with me. He sat down. That's our, that's our Lord, that's our Christianity, that's our faith. He sat down. Our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. Whether we look back, now, or forward, he sat down. Whether we lost our temper, I should say, when we lost our temper, he sat down. When we hated someone, he sat down. Whether we complained or were overly critical or rebelled against God and failed and muffed it, when we confessed it, he already sat down, okay? When we were jealous, he sat down. When we were filled with lust, he sat down. When we gossiped and we knew we shouldn't have, he sat down. When we stole or were selfish or lied or cheated, he already sat down. It's not an excuse to continue poor or sinful behavior and step on grace, 
but a wonderful relief of guilt, a freedom from the accusing arrows of the devil and his demons. When he harasses you, just go, go take a long walk off a short pier because Jesus sat down and my sins are gone in the eyes of God. That's what I want you to do. I just want to take 30 seconds of silence before we take the communion and just thank him for the fact that he sat down and he doesn't even see your sins anymore. Second Corinthians 5 says it very clearly. You know, not counting our sins against us. That's the way to live life. Not in perpetual guilt, but in perpetual praise because of the finality of our forgiveness. He's better. He's superior. Let's thank him that he sat down in pr- and just in silent prayer. Abba, Father, how, how can we say thanks enough? How? How can we say thanks that in Christ, the superior, better Savior, he took all our sins and abolished them in him? And then you broke death's power. He broke death's power and he sat next to you on your right hand. All we can do is just say thanks. It's just unbelievable. It's hard to even express our thanksgiving, our gratitude. Protect us from ever being blinded enough by the devil and their own flesh that anything else could be any better or superior to that. For those here today that are just facing a knockdown, drag out fight with life, fill them with the fact that they're gonna be co-heirs with Christ forever and ever and ever. And for those that are struggling with sin, Help them uh, not just try to white-knuckle it away or, or um, just say, uh, I surrender to it. Help them to be empowered by the love of God. If, if, if God would so love us, Lord, how can, we, how can we do bad things against him? That's sin-breaking power. And then, Lord, we just give thanks to you for Jesus for sitting down It's all over in terms of how we appear to you. Thank you for that. We love you. We really do. How grateful we are. How thankful we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let me fly over here to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I am just going to, with the hopes that he sat down, is spinning in your head. I hope that's the case anyway. I know it is mine. Uh, We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And and give thanks to him. Oops, it's not in 2 Corinthians. It's in 1 Corinthians. There we go. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
We give praise to your name, Jesus, and immediately following that, the apostles Paul said, in the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's stand together. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful church. I thank you for what you're doing in, the, in and through the people here. I thank you for today that we could just soak ourselves in the awesome truth about you, Jesus. We go out of here happy that we came. And uh, help us to live a life worthy of the name Christian. And not turning away, but turning towards you, Jesus, and running to you in anticipation of what's going to happen in a very short amount of time. We're going to be co-heirs with you. We thank you for that. We love you, and we give you the rest of the day in Jesus' name. Amen.